Good morning, church. Um, excited about God's word today. We're going to look at this text together, Psalm 100. Let's get started here. I'm going to read to you the, the entire thing. First five verses, it's just five verses. So here we go, verse one. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever, his faithfulness through all generations. I think Connect Sunday is a perfect opportunity for us to think again about who we are as a church. What does God call us to as a church? And this passage paints a picture of the community of faith. Wherever the church in modern times moves away from or bears no reflection to Psalm 100, we have lost our way. And this is, Psalm 100 is a kind of north star calling us back, saying this is what Jesus, this is the kind of community Jesus is building. This is the kind of community Jesus meant to unleash on the world. This kind of community that we see here in Psalm 100. Let me ask you this question. This is the name of the message. What comes to mind when you think church? So just sort of free association. When I say church, what kind of words come pouring into your mind? Associations, feelings, that kind of thing. What comes into your mind? I, I got into a conversation with um, the guy who came over on Friday to repair our refrigerator. And after he finished repairing the refrigerator, we just started talking in the kitchen. We had a spiritual conversation. He shared some things that he believed. I shared things that I believe was just a great exchange. And at several points in the course of his conversation, his negative feelings about Christianity Came, came through. And I think the recurring words that came out the most when he thinks of church, if I could narrow it down to two, would be ignorant and judgmental. And he grew up in a Baptist church. He had many family members who are ministers in Baptist churches and in Christian churches of different kinds. And he even seemed to have stories to back up his negative assessment of his experience of church and what church is like. What about you? If you had to summarize in just a few verbs, if you had to take three verbs to capture the essence of what God's people are meant to be, what might those verbs be? What would you say? And I would suggest to us that Psalm 100 is God talking about church. It's God telling us about his people and what we're meant to be. Psalm 100, if you will, is God's own answer to the question, what comes to mind, Lord, when you think church? Psalm 100 is God's infallible, inerrant answer. It doesn't say everything about the church, and we've got a book full, 66 books in the Bible that tell us things about what God's people are meant to be and the nature of our relationship with him. So this is not a one-stop shop, but there is a lot here, and I think we're gonna hear, by the time we're done, three clear imperatives that point to the essence of what it means to be God's people, and the first is this, rejoice. There's a verb, 
that captures the essence of what we are to be as God's people. Rejoice. There's this call to worship. You see it right there in verse one. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. Verse two, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. So this call to worship that rings out in verse one is, is actually not even limited to the church. It's actually, it resounds throughout the entire world. It goes out and says, the old school version, the King James version would say, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. This invoking the praise of the nations, but it, it doesn't stay broad. This psalm begins broad and then it zooms in on the life of God's people, the community of faith. It uses that language in verse three. The community of faith is clearly in view, but again, look at verse one. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. So four brief observations from the first two verses. The first is this. The volume of worship is loud. The volume of worship is loud. I wonder how many of you growing up were considered to be a loud child. Can you raise your hand? If you were considered to be a loud, some of you, I know you, and it's like, yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. All right, how many of you have a loud child? Okay, you raise it quicker. <laughs> So I was, I was a loud child. I remember my mom used to say to me all the time, she, I've never heard anybody else use this, this phrase, but she would say, Matt, your voice carries. And that was her way of saying, you're talking too loud, like I'm right in front of you and I can hear you from the next room. We're right here, just right, dial it down a little bit. I, w I was the loud child, right? That was something I was really familiar with at some point. And now I appreciate it more because I have one. Uh, our son, Will, I'm just gonna mention him by name, 17 years old. There he is, and he is, uh, he is super loud. At some point when, um, when the boys were really little, Will was maybe four, and Hunter was probably seven, and uh, we had a night where we were just gonna watch some YouTube clips of great music, and one night we dedicated those YouTube clips to Pavarotti, and I said, I'm gonna show you guys some Pavarotti. This guy has the biggest voice in the world and you're just gonna have to hear it. And we cranked up the volume and we watched one Pavarotti song after another and I saved my favorite Pavarotti song for last, Nessun Dorma, 1994 performance of Nessun Dorma. And just electric. I remember where I was when I first heard it. I remember the kind of computer, the gateway computer it was on. I remember everything about this song. And so I said, boys, here we go, Nessun Dorma, turned it up and there we were, Mason boys lined up, wide-eyed, just listening to the force of this sound coming out of this man's mouth. It was unbelievable. And I'm kind of tearing up, because not only because of the music itself, but I'm like, they get it. Like, they're actually, this is communicating to them. They're, they're impressed by this. And, uh, and after that, so it was about that time when Will started to do um, Pavarotti impressions. <laughs> and he couldn't pronounce Pavarotti, but he would call them, he would call it using his powerful voice. Uh, but it was only two syllables. It was powerful voice. And he would dig in and use his powerful voice. He would like put his hands like this and then he would just throw them out and go like full on Pavarotti mode, right? The big point of the song and he would just bring that. And he was, it was, he was just, even at four, so incredibly loud. And, and still, so a couple, a couple nights ago, the, the girls were off at a volleyball tournament, Hunters at College in Louisville, and Will and I are home together. It's 9.30 at night on Friday night. We go over to the piano, he grabs a guitar, and we start singing songs together, and we hit the big moment of the song, and there goes the powerful voice. He brings out powerful voice, and I'm literally, literally 
thinking, the neighbors can hear this in their houses. And I, I did this to Will. I'm like, dial it down. And people are, someone down the street's trying to have a quiet bath and like powerful voice is just carrying down the whole street, right? Well, Psalm 100, it speaks of the joy of the church as something you can hear down the street. It carries, it, it, it seeps through the walls, it finds people out there, you can hear the audible joy of God's people. It's, it's just loud, Right, I love this thought that Marvin Tate, he's a commentator who writes about this psalm. And he, he says this, the enthusiasm of Israelite worship is illustrated throughout Psalms 93 through 100. So just pause there for a second. There are certain collections of psalms within the broader collection of psalms and one group of songs is Psalm 93 through 100. This is closing out a series of psalms that are often called royal psalms and they have these distinctive features that they have in common. Not gonna go into all that, but here's what he says. The enthusiasm of Israelite worship is illustrated throughout Psalms 93 to 100. Shouts are raised. Praise is chanted and sung while musical instruments are played and horns blown. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. I love that. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. And it, right here in verse one, straight out of the gate, there are volume switches on the text. There are volume indicators in verse one. So just look at this sampling of translations that have come to us through church history. King James Version. 1611, make a joyful noise to the Lord. New American Standard, shout joyfully to the Lord. I love this one, Wycliffe's translation in the 1300s. Sing ye heartily to God. New International Version, shout for joy to the Lord. And then the Christian Standard Bible, shout triumphantly to God. So in other words, verse one, if you will, is God with his hand on the volume knob of the church and he's cranking it. He is turning it up. He's saying, shout triumphantly. Don't just talk, don't just sing quietly. Turn it up. It's God saying that to his people. There's an appropriate place for outward, exuberant expressions of joy in God our King. Look, there are, again, this is not a one-stop shop. So there are places in the Psalms, and we've seen them in the series that we've just been in. There are places in the Psalm where, where God calls us to, Psalm 46.10, be still and know that he is God. There are, there are places in the Psalms where we're called to come before God with a sense of hushed awe and reverence before him. There are Psalms like that, and then there are Psalms like this one. This one is different. This one starts by saying, shout triumphantly. Make joyful noise. Turn it up. God painting this picture of his church where the, the volume of worship is loud too. The call to worship is global. The call to worship is global. Again, there from the beginning, let the whole earth enter into this right? Make a joyful noise to the earth, to the Lord, all the earth. So as the one true God, and this is striking, you think about this in our culture, that God, God has the right as the one true and living God to command the worship of every human being who ever lived. And not only does he have the right, he commands it. He summons the nations to praise him. 
calls forth. It's an imperative. He calls to the nations to worship him. Look, by the way, this, this is where history is going. We have this window into the future in the book of Revelation and we see the nations, people from every tribe and tongue and language all worshiping around the throne of God. We, we have these pictures like in Philippians chapter two where you see the terminal moment of history and Jesus Christ is the exalted Lord of heaven and earth and everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth is doing what? Is on bended knee acknowledging that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The terminal moment of history will be rife with reverence before this awesome God. The, the Great Commission, friends, it, it's not wishful thinking. It's going to happen. All the nations will see him, will acknowledge he's great, he's Lord. The, the earth, as the prophet said, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. It's not a hypothesis, it's an is. It's, it's coming. It's a promise. The call to worship is global. Third, the spirit of worship is joyful. The spirit of worship is joyful. So look at the first two verses and you just see, it's, it's not just make a joyful noise, it's shout triumphantly, it's, it's It's joyful noise. In verse two, it's not just serving, it's not just songs, it's joyful songs and serve with gladness. Joy, joy, triumph, gladness. It's all over this text right from the very beginning. Friend, Psalm 100 isn't a passage for those other churches. Psalm 100 is for us. Psalm 100 is here for the church at Brook Hills. If you ever uh, watch Mythbusters, great show, right? These, These science whiz people and they perform all kinds of experiments, just crazy, zany experiments. They're blowing stuff up and they say there at the beginning, before we have all this fun, this is just for us, right? What do they say at the beginning of the show? Don't what? Try this at home. So we're the only ones, we're the professionals, we're the experts, don't try this at home. Here's the thing, Psalm 100 doesn't have any such label. I mean, you can look at the ascription, you can look at the content of the psalm, Uh, there is no warning label that says, you know, this is just for us 3,000 years ago. In other words, when we read this text, it is for us to try this at home. God is saying, this is what my people do. They rejoice. They're glad in me and what I have done. Yes, we, I love the word that Pastor Daniel was sharing with us this morning, just reminding us that we, we acknowledge our sin. When we come into the presence of God, we acknowledge our sin. We, we own up to the distance that there is between this ineffably holy God, unspeakably holy God, and we ourselves. There is infinite distance between us and God, given our our sin and his absolute purity. So we acknowledge that, we repent, we turn, we confess our sins, and yet, as he told us right after that, Pastor Daniel led us into the assurance of pardon that is ours because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, every Sunday we acknowledge our sin, but we don't put a period at the sentence and then we leave dejected. acknowledge our sin and every Sunday we also remember what God has done about it. What God has done in Christ to save us from all of that and we remember the story. Every Sunday Jesus lived, he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life and then he went to the cross as a substitute for us and he bore the punishment that we deserved in his body on the tree and then he rose again three days later and we remember that story every Sunday. 
And for everyone, every Christian here, this describes your life. You have, you have hidden in Jesus. You have run to Jesus. And so the truth is, and we could sing it every Sunday in a hundred different ways, our sins, they are many, right? His mercy is more. Where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. There, there's something that's been happening, this sort of phenomenon. I don't know if you've seen it play out here at Brook Hills. But it's where when we're singing, occasionally there are these spontaneous claps that just start to come together in different parts of the room leading to certain moments of the song. And I'm a fan. I think it's great. I'm not only a fan, I've become a practitioner. So I'm being swept up into whatever this thing is that we've been doing where we spontaneously just applaud our way into a certain section of the song. And here's what's happening. In my own mind, I don't know why you're doing it. Here's why I'm doing it. When I clap into a section of a song or something that I'm singing, it's me serving notice to my soul saying, Matt, get this. <laughs> Matt, I need this truth right here. That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm clapping that reality. I'm thinking about that truth. It's saying, listen, right here, this is the good stuff right here. Get it. That's the truth of it. Right, th this morning, so I just wrote this down while we were singing Christ has paid for every failing. I am his forevermore. That's something worth shouting about. That's something worth clapping about. Singing and rejoicing triumphantly before our God who has paid for every failing. Could that possibly be true? Is it really that good? And it is. It's that good. We remember it every Sunday. And that truth is actually right here. I'm his forevermore. And this text says, he is God. He made us. We're his. He's got us. It's a powerful thing. Look, if the truth of the gospel gets into our bloodstream as a church, our worship will have an unmistakable note of joy. No matter what we're going through, no matter what circumstances we're going through, there will always be this unmistakable, for those who are discerning, you can hear, there is a note of joy that is irrepressible in the gathering of the saints. Why? Because your future couldn't be brighter as a Christian. But what do you mean? Here's your story as a believer. I'm calling it right here. Here's your story. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord will deliver us out of them all. That's your story. What does that mean? It means joy will catch up by the, by the time the day is done. The joy will catch you. It might not feel in your own personal experience that it's right here on your heels, but it's coming and it'll catch you in the end. Joy unspeakable and filled with glory, Peter talks about it in 1 Peter chapter one. What, what comes to mind when you think church we ask God here in Psalm 100 and he says, here's a word that comes to mind. Joy. Gladness. Joyful songs. In other words, God is saying, my people have a reason to shout. My people have a reason to sing. You think about even wherever you are in suffering or pain, as Augustine said 1,600 years ago, anything this side of hell is grace. What we deserve is judgment. What we are getting as of this morning, all day, every day, is grace. And there's more coming. There's more coming. Infinite mercy from 
a merciful Father. The, vo- the volume is loud. The call of worship is global. The spirit of worship is joyful. The scope of worship is total. The scope of worship is total. So worship lays claim to everything that we do in our lives. We don't, in that sense, punch in to the worship clock when we walk into this room and then we punch out of the worship clock when we leave. No, worship is something where it's a continual overflow of a recognition of the greatness of God and that overflow touches everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we eat, everything that we drink. So just think about this. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, Colossians 3.17. He said, whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink, so the real small stuff, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, how all-encompassing could he possibly be? Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So for the Christian, all of life is meant to be an act of worship. Pleasing him, as Paul said, in every way. I I love the old hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be, because it connects worship to everything. And it's it's almost like it draws a picture of your body on a whiteboard and it just starts walking. Just take take my lips and take my hands, take my feet and let them move swift and beautiful for you. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be your royal throne. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take, take my money, take, not a mite would I withhold. Take my silver and my gold, it's all yours. Everything, the whole practical life of the Christian, it's all for him. It's all done in his name, in his service. This word serve in verse two, it's the Hebrew word abad. It's a comprehensive word. It covers everything in the Old Testament from formal acts of praise in the temple to shovels in the ground in Genesis chapter two. Serving, working, literally working a physical field. What's that mean? It means this serving the Lord with gladness isn't just about what we do when we gather. It's, it's this all of life worship picture What you do for the next six days before we come back here again next Sunday matters. Every moment, the big and the small, what you eat, what you drink, everything you say, the people you interact with, the job that you do, all of it matters deeply. Sacredness, because you put your faith in Christ, sacredness is now shot through everything in your life. It touches everything. Paul says this, Colossians 3.23, about work. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, not just for your employer, your supervisor. Done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. Isn't that an awesome thing? How, how much that dignifies every moment of the believer's life. It's shot through with dignity, with worship. Does it change anything in the way you approach your week if you wake up tomorrow thinking, I don't merely work at the retail store. I don't merely work for this financial institution. I'm not just rearing children. I'm not just working toward my undergrad. I am serving the Lord. All of it matters. What do you think when you think church? 
Do you think of this all-comprehending vision of ascribing glory to the one who made us and saved us and doing it with a heart that with an unmistakable note of joy that's there. This, this psalm reminds us that rejoicing in God is his intention for us. Joy is to be a mark of God's people. Even as Paul said, we, we despair, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It's not you sorrow or you rejoice. Sorrowful, yet this irrepressible joy is still there because of the gospel. So rejoice, number two, know the Lord. Another description of what it means to be his people. We know the Lord. The, the Christian Standard Bible that I'm reading from, it translates verse three, acknowledge that the Lord is God. So what does that word acknowledge? It, it carries the sense of recognizing something, not just mentally nodding yes, but taking it on board, getting under it, acknowledging he is Lord and that's a good thing. I'm coming underneath that truth. That's helpful, that's a good translation. That helps us understand what this means. But, but part of me, just because I'm familiar with Psalm 100 for many years, this has been such a sweet passage to me. I still like that older one. I still like that know that the Lord he is God, know it, deeply know this truth. So three truths right here in verse three. Number one, he is God. He's God. You see how much this passage is laser focused on God. So time and time again, it's using his, him, he, God, Lord, him, his, he, over and over. Just look down and let these words just jump off the page. Verse one, to God. Verse two, serve the Lord. Verse two, come before him. Verse three, know the Lord. He made. Verse three repeats that possessive pronoun three times. We're his, we're his, we're his. Verse four, his gates, his courts, to him, his name. Verse five, the Lord is good, his faithful love, his faithfulness. It's just packing in this concentrated picture of the church looking up to God. He's there. Five verses, 89 words, and so much God just all over this passage. Look, the reason we want our songs and our sermons to be filled with God, to be God-centered, isn't because God-centeredness is trending right now in, in the broader church. It's because God is the center he is the center of the universe. There is no one better to talk about any Sunday than him. Gathered worship is a great reminder. It's a kind of therapy for my inner narcissist, right? It's a great reminder to me that the universe doesn't revolve around me. It might do us good to just say that. <laughs> The universe doesn't orbit around me. I am not in control. I, I am not sovereign. I'm not the one the world was waiting for. He is the center. He is the treasure. He is the king. He satisfies. He is our joy. He is our portion. That's the Christian life. He runs the universe and that's a good thing. It's good that I'm not in control. It's good that God is in control. As the great preacher J. Vernon McGee said, tongue in cheek, he said, this is God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. It's true. We remember that every Sunday when we're singing about the greatness and bigness and transcendence of God. I don't have a world to run. 
This is my father's world. He is in charge. God is God and I'm not. There's a therapy in that. God is God and I'm not. He is God. Second, he made us. He made us. You think about the implications of the doctrine of creation. The road of dependence in our relationship with God only travels in one direction. We need God. God doesn't need us. He made us. We didn't make him. We didn't make ourselves. He made us. We exist, every person in this room, believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. We exist because God graciously decided we would exist. He gave you life and breath. He is giving you life and breath right now. You are breathing right now because God keeps saying yes to you breathing. Now and now and now. He is actively sustaining the molecules in your body by the word of his power. It's that awesome. He's that here. He's that imminent. He's that transcendent. You know, there, there's, there's this human thirst, isn't there, for, for transcendence, for something bigger than we are, something awesome, something we can't explain. We, we thirst for mystery. We're on a quest for, for mystery, to be swept up into something bigger than we are, to be out of our depth, to be, to be lost in wonder, right? There's this human quest reaching for that. We, and we find experiences in the world that give us a little taste, the sort of faint echoes of wonder. But the thing is, those faint echoes are meant to be pointing us further up and further into the one God who always has been and always will be, who is, who is mysterious and glorious and beyond the capacity of our powers of intellect. He is awesome. There is no one like him. This psalm isn't just restating the obvious you know, that God made the world and everything in it and everyone in it. He, he goes on to clarify right there in verse three that, that God has a special people. God has a flock. He has sheep. He has a fold, right? And in the Old Testament, those descriptions, they, they fit over the people Israel. God made a promise. He calls this man, the patriarch of Israel, Abraham. He said, I'm making you promises. I've just, I've chosen you and I'm making promises to you and everybody who's gonna come after you. I'm gonna bless your family. And we know that it wasn't just gonna live in his own family. We know that even from the beginning, that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that the promise was, through your family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed through you. And so we know where that arrow was flying from Genesis 12, it was flying to every tribe, tongue, nation gathered around the throne singing the praises of the Lamb. It's leading in that direction. From the very beginning, God would have a people for himself, a multi-ethnic community of redeemed sinners purchased by the blood of Christ. That's the story from the beginning to the end. And here's the truth of it. We are his. He is God. He made us. And we are his, there's something about that possessive, isn't there? His, we belong to him. You think about the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. What does he say to the church at Corinth? They were living life their own way. He said, hey, hey, no, 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 time out. You're not your own. You are not your own. And I say to Christians in this room, you are not your own. You don't get to do life on your own terms. You have a Lord. 
You have a master, you have a king, and he's good. He tells us the way of wisdom. He tells us the way of salvation. You are not your own. Paul said you've been bought with a price. Christians are twice claimed by God. We're claimed by him by virtue of the fact that he's our creator, and we're claimed again by virtue of the fact that he is our redeemer. We are indebted to him for every breath because he formed us in the womb, and we are debtors to mercy because he redeemed us through Jesus. Twice claimed. He made you in creation, he remade you, and is remaking you in Christ. You think about that in relation to your life right now. So these are big truths, right? He's God, he made us, we are his. So we think about our own lives. So we, we look within, we look without. We look within in battles and turmoils and sin and heart and mind and anxiety and pressure and fear, right? That's what's in. We haven't even looked out yet. We haven't even turned on the news. We're looking in and it's a bad story, right? And then, and then you turn the news on and then you look around at friends going through marital struggles and pain in their lives and suffering and chronic diagnoses and all this stuff is swirling around. You ever feel out of your depth? How am I possibly supposed to swim in all this? How can I keep my head above water? Don't you ever feel the need for a God who has grace and power? And Psalm 100 says, you've got one. He is a God of grace and power. The God we worship made the world. I could barely assemble a barbecue pit, much less create a world. You should have seen the sad story in my backyard when I was assembling my barbecue pit. Our, you would have thought I was building a rocket for NASA in the backyard. And my kids are sort of, you know, I can see the blinds raised up. It's sort of like don't look a wild animal in the eye kind of look, you know, sort of trying to create a smile to encourage me, but it's like four hours later. Right, that, that's us. We, we don't gather friends to worship a souped up version of ourselves. We have a God who is mighty, who is sovereign, who is capable, who is a God of providence and sovereignty. Look, you read through the Old Testament, you find your God doing what? Setting the dates of the rise and fall of every kingdom in the history of the world. That's the God who says, you're mine, we're his. He possesses us. You think about your own fears, you think about your worries. Does the thing you fear the most have on its resume maker of heaven and earth? If not, you're golden because you trust in the one who is the maker of heaven and earth. So what, what's the counsel that we give in light of that truth? The counsel is Psalm 4610, be still and know that he is God. Cast your cares on him, knowing that he cares for you. Trust him. My, my, my world is is full of enough mirrors. I don't need another mirror. I need a window. I need a way to see up and through. Up and out. Get, I love this. I love Psalm 100 because everything is his. We just looked down. The gates are his. The courts are his. The songs are his. The earth is his. We are his. Everything is his. That's the God we worship. That's why gathered worship isn't supposed to be an exercise in navel gazing, you know, where we sort of just come together, let's all circle up, let's, let's try to see the inner workings of our hearts so we can feel appropriately terrible about how we've lived our lives this past week and hopefully that guilt will motivate us to do something better with our lives than we did last week. That's what church can be if we don't keep the good news front and center. 
It can be that. You just leave with a weight on your back. I hope we don't leave here every Sunday with the last word being, do more, do more. For goodness sake, please do more. If that's the last word that you hear, that will either crush you because you can't, or maybe worse, it will inflate you beyond tolerable limits because you think you're pulling it off. There's something better. There's something way better. The the prestige, the thing that God is holding behind his back and he brings out in the fullness of time is a savior. (laughs) The big reveal that we bring out every single Sunday is some version of Jesus came and he's the one we've always needed and he's here. It's this truth of the gospel. You might say, but you said that last week. Yes, and we'll say it again next week. And I hope it becomes your favorite thing to say and your favorite thing to hear because it's the central statement of the Bible. Jesus is the hero of the story. And we say it until the truth breaks in on us. Until the truth of the gospel breaks into our darkness and our sin and our addiction and our suicidal thoughts and our nominalism and our boredom and our shame and our guilt and we say it until it becomes our new favorite thing to say and our new favorite thing to hear. Every Sunday as a church, here's what we're doing. We're inviting one another. We're saying essentially to one another, glad you're here, know the Lord. Come, come, let's know him together. Let's sing of his greatness. Let's look into his self-revealing word. Let's know the Lord together. Let's acknowledge he's God. Let's get underneath that truth. He made us, we are his. Paul prayed, how did Paul pray for the early church in Colossae? He says, I want you to know the Lord. I want you to be rooted in him and built up in him. I want you to be growing in the knowledge of God. Colossians 1 verse 10. That changes everything, everything. We wanna know God better and better because, because the better we know him, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we obey. And that's the way this thing goes down, called the Christian life. We know him and we trust him and we obey him. What's the church? It's a people who rejoice, it's a people who know the Lord, it's a people third who spread the word spread the word. Verse five, for the Lord is good. His faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. And then there in verse one, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. What are we seeing here in Psalm 100? In a way, we're seeing the threefold task of the church. Worship, nurture, and mission. Just five verses And all of those things are here. A people praising God. A people growing in the knowledge of God. A people taking the message of God to every generation and taking it out to the world. This is in your notes. We take the gospel to every nation. We take the gospel to every nation. God wants this life of rejoicing that marks his people to impact the whole world. (laughs) How do we know? Because it's where our psalm began. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to God. I love what commentator Derek Kidner, he says, verse one, quote, claims the world for God. Missions is a joy project. 
I'm gonna keep saying that until I hear it coming back in my direction. Missions is a joy project. It is not primarily grit and sacrifice. It's joy on the run. It's joy in tennis shoes. Look at Romans chapter 10, the classic passage on missions, and what is it? Happy feet bringing good news to the world. It's a joy project. Joy in tennis shoes, joy running in the world's direction. And the psalm ends with God's faithfulness being seen not only by all the nations, but by every generation, generation after generation. As a church, we have a passion for that. Passion for every nation, passion for every generation. It's not one at the expense of the other. They're not in an adversarial relationship. It's a call from God. So we take the gospel to every nation. Next point, we transfer the gospel to every generation. This is... is This is why we do kids' ministry. Practically speaking, this is why we do kids' ministry the way that we do. I haven't looked at the lesson plans in all the halls around our campus today, but I know what's happening wherever kids are this morning. Staff members and an awesome team of volunteers are saying to your children, know the Lord. Come, come, learn his word. Let me tell you the story about Jesus. Let me tell you what he's done. And they're dazzling the hearts of our children with the gospel. That's why we do ministry the way that we do it in children and students and college. That's why we encourage parents to have family worship in your homes. That's why we have things like the parenting conference this past weekend to say it matters what we do in our households. It matters what our children are hearing is the most important thing in the universe. Are we saying, hey, Son, no, the Lord, he made you. He is awesome, he is worth knowing. There's nothing like knowing him. This is why you exist, he's wired you for joy right here, seeking first his kingdom. I love this psalm, I love the buoyancy of this psalm. Great Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher who lived in the mid-1800s, he said about this psalm this, Nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble psalm by a vast congregation. It is all ablaze with grateful adoration. Love that. It is ablaze with grateful adoration. You ever get on the phone with somebody, you know them so well that you can hear them smiling? They're just talking, they're telling you a story. Maybe it's somebody, college, a good friend of yours, She's off in college, and she's just making a passing reference about English class, and she talks about this guy in English class, and you say, why were you smiling? And she's like, wait, what are you talking about? And she's like, you were smiling. Like, it changes your vowel sounds, like when you talk about things and you're smiling, I could hear you're smiling. Tell me what's up with this guy in your English class, right? You're able to sort of read that because you know them so well, you could hear the smile. Right? If you thought that church was just noise in Psalm 100, you need to listen again. Because when you listen more closely, there's joy in the sound. There is this this note of joy. And the, the reason for it is because of the hope that we have in Christ. Because of the certainty of our future, there is a ring of joy in the life and witness of the local church. It's in it, it's permeating, it's under the life and worship and witness of the church. When a cynical culture, here's the word church, all kinds of words come to mind. Not flattering, right? Boring, irrelevant, judgmental, 
lame, rules, religion. God has a different list. You ask God, what comes to mind when you think church, when you think your people as you intended to unleash them on the world, what comes to your mind? And God says, here's my list. Joyful, gladness, songs, shouting, thanksgiving, nations worshiping, children and their children's children knowing his faithfulness. There are all kinds of things that we can be about as a church. What's wrong with this one? Can we lean into this one where we are these joyful people changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ in awe of the greatness of God sharing it and showing it to the world and to the next generation? That's a picture worth aiming at.